Hello there. I have a very special episode for you today. I am speaking with the Reverend Freakchild, blues musician, born in Hawaii, grew up in New York City where he spent a lot of time. He shares with us his life journey with music, with addiction, and how he found his spiritual path to recovery. He brings together elements of gospel and blues, as well as uh, Dharma teachings in his music. And he is currently researching the tradition of dohas, or songs of spiritual realization from the Buddhist lineages. So we talk about that, we share some of those, we share some of his music, and I think it's really beautiful and inspiring what he's doing. I'm going to play for you guys a clip of one of his songs right now. Well now things ain't what they seem, is life but a dream. Well, you might get rid of all your things, but in your mind you're still clean. Well, your house may be holy, but you ain't the only one home, all alone. I can feel you, all sad and blue, and all I wanna do. Comfort you Well you may be done with your past But it ain't done with you So that gives you a taste of what this man has been up to He is on tour all summer across America With his album Dial It In Please enjoy Welcome to A State of Mind with me, your host, Julian Ocean. And I'm here today with Fordham, also known as Reverend Freakchild, child of the universe, <laughs> blues musician. Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, um, <laughs> well, anyway, it's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Hawaii and, um, then moved back to the East Coast, and now I find myself out here in Colorado, you know, singing songs of realization and singing some blues tunes. And, you know, I can I can hear my dad, you know, thanks for that introduction of being a blues musician. <laughs> but I can hear my dad saying, a white boy playing the blues, that's what they call rock and roll, you know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I found my way out here to Colorado. It's beautiful. And um, uh, studying at uh, Naropa, working on a Master of Divinity, got really sort of down with the Dharma, as it were, you know, but uh, yeah, really exploring that path. You know, I was raised Christian, and uh, the blues is very, you know, informed by that uh, uh, tradition. You know, you got people like Muddy Waters, who's like the preeminent bluesman, you know, saying, if you want to know about the blues, you got to get to church. You know, it's an old field recording that he did with Alan huh. Lomax, you know, way, way back in the day. So That's that always intrigued me, yeah to uh, sort of delve sort of 
deeper into those traditions and where you know yeah yeah almost like the second noble truth really the causes of suffering like oh there's there's something deeper in here isn't there than the, just the mere appearance of things <laughs> yeah so the second noble truth that you want to say what that is yeah well there you know the, the, there's the the four noble truths you know there's there's suffering there's a cause of suffering there's a cessation to suffering and then there's uh, you know a liberation from that or a peace or a marga you know path out of that whether it be right. an eightful path or the five margas of sort of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, so. Yeah. And when you put it that way, it's really, it doesn't sound like a particular religion. It's a universal describing the human condition. We all experience suffering. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, the connection with, in this country, in this culture, blues and Christianity and gospel music mm-hmm. and how our own musical traditions were really so influenced and informed by Christianity, spirituality. And I think that's still true today. I think if you talk to a lot of musicians, they have, a spirituality that comes through their music in their own way. Definitely, you know, and I feel like my music is, you know, you got this new the new album out, dial it in. It's got we got the vinyl version here that I brought to you today. Um, but that seems like sort of a, a, a spir- spiritual materialism, if you will, you know, to invoke the uh, the the <laughs> uncle uncle Ripoche Trump, Trumpa, you know, uh, um, the spiritual materialism of you know having a CD or a tape or a sound recording you know all that is sort of a spiritual byproduct i sort of see as my journey you know and byproduct um, of your journey yeah i mean and touching into traditions whether they be you know with kempo socham gatso you know sort of uh Rinpoche and lama tempa you know these are uh, people that i studied with your contemporaries in the nalanda bodhi tradition they really embrace these songs of realization mm. you know um, and there's a long history of that, you know, Milarepa and his hundred thousand songs, and the songs of Naropa. Well, so, uh, yeah, I just want to slow you down a little yeah. bit. Um, a lot of these people you're mentioning, like uh, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, is a great Buddhist teacher, mm. and Milarepa was in his lineage as right. a Buddhist master. And people might not know that, and they um, were great meditators um, who had great realization, and then they sang songs. Right. So, and we have them as sort of poems, you know. Right. <coughs> But uh, someone like Kempo Sutram Gatso uh, encouraged people to write melodies to these, you know, poems, these phrases of realization, you know, that were talking about deep concepts like we were talking about uh, the Four Noble Truths or the, uh, or the Two Truths of Relative and Ultimate Reality, you know. And it made these, like you're saying, sort of slowing it down in the sense of, uh, wow, these are really esoteric ideas, but they're sort of at the central part of our being you know they're universal states mm. of mind or states of being you know but when you sing about them it makes them more accessible i think to a lot of people yeah you know so what happened with me was that you know um at first i i, re- I thought oh my god i i can't sing these songs of realization i'm not realized but as i read more and more the idea was really to as you study and as you practice and as you know you proceed with your conduct you know in a dharmic way it it was naturally informing songs that i was writing you know i'd have a melody and then i'd be you know like the, the title track to the dial it in is about uh, you know realizing the eight mundane concerns you know and i could never remember them so i put them into a verse you know and oh, i love that you know and it helps you remember when you exactly. know a song we all get these songs stuck in our head right exactly but the, the other thing you're saying is I mean, as a practice, mm-hmm. singing a song with meaningful lyrics where there's a melody and the lyrics have meaning and exactly. then you're also looking at your own your own self, your own mind, however you want to think yeah. about it. Uh, I think that's so powerful. I love that. Yeah, because through the, the 
writing of this tune, you know, you look at the eight mundane concerns, and then actually the tune was all about dialing it in. It was riding, driving down the highway, and dialing in the, the radio station, and feeling like, wow, I'm feeling better because I'm listening to a song. Mm. But I'm, it's the view of, you know, wow, this song can help me. Okay, I'm writing a song about realizing the eight mundane concerns, which are loss and gain, and praise and blame, obscurity yeah, and fame. See. Let's see what those are. Yeah, so they're kind of eight. Concerns that we all have living in the world, right? And they're they're extremes, you know. Like that you, the first one, loss and gain. You lose things, you gain things, right? And it's the ebb and flow, and the sort of proves the impermanence of of the nature. And of then reality. what's the what are the next ones? So loss and gain, praise and blame, praise and blame, like our reputation, or right. So yeah. people are, you know, oh, you know, the very, I mean, evident in our culture, fame. You know, oh, who's revered, who's right. celebrated, you know, who's on TV, and then who becomes president. You know, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but uh, and then you know, blame and and people being ostracized. You know, and and. Uh, those can be extremes. And then you have pleasure and pain, which is very sort of more close to home, you know. But in the more of the sense of not like physical pleasure and pain, but physical in the sense of maybe addiction where it's a mental component as well. Right. You know. And I'm I'm in recovery going on 13 years here. Um, so I the path of, path of excess led to the palace of wisdom for me, as uh, William mm-hmm. Blake says. Um, That's a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that idea of like, wow, I was chasing after this pleasure for so many years and realizing I, I didn't need it after a while. You know, it was destroying my body, trying to put these chemicals into my body and mm. maintain this state of mind. And uh, I remember talking to one of my uncles and I said, you know, this meditation stuff's even better than LSD. And he was like, really? <laughs> Are you serious, man? LSD, that was the most far out trip I ever had. And I was like, dude, start sitting on the cushion. It gets far out there, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, you, 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 you trudge through the boredom and you, you, uh, you know, work with the pain of your body. And every once in a while you realize, wow, there's a whole universe that I'm connected to in this mortal form that I didn't create or maybe i did create with by my own karma you know who knows but huh. uh, anyway just to finish on the yeah the eight mundane concerns i guess what did we do loss and gain praise and blame pleasure and pain pain oh no did we do which one <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> see this is why i put it into a song because like, yeah. i can never remember it anyway no we um, were on pleasure and pain, pleasure and then, and pain. Um, loss and gain pleasure and pain praise and blame obscurity and fame Okay, that's a separate one. I'm right, so I was talking about the yeah. fame before, but yeah, I guess that one's more uh, really about the obscurity and fame and in the culture. The Buddhist tradition, these are things to overcome, so to speak, that yeah. we all have and we can kind of... Yeah, and they're, and they're almost in the way of like a... Uh, they're, they're, you know, not to be, not to use the word in the wrong way, but they're sort of the neurotic element and the wisdom's right on the other side, right? Right. So if I find myself... Saying, "Oh my God, the Reverend Freak Child character is not famous enough. I'm not making enough money. You know, I got lost in gain. Oh, pleasure and pain. It's you know, it's like wow. Maybe that's a little indicator that I want to. What do I what do I do with that? And in the tune that I wrote, uh, dial it in. It was like, well, why don't we try to embrace the four measurables, which are you know, the, the problem with the eight mundane concerns is that they're limited. You know, it can keep chasing after fame. It can well, keep the, chasing this, after yeah. pleasure." And they're not that's a, they're not bad in and of themselves. Exactly. We all experience them. We all experience pain. We all experience right. pleasure. We all experience loss and gain. Right. But when we are so wrapped up and so identified, then that's the suffering that's sort the, of cause our own suffering. There. The suffering of suffering, the unnecessary additional suffering we put on you know, right. what's already happening. But like you're saying, the other aspect of you know the suffering of change 
it points to this this all pervading suffering that this is just like how you're saying this is human this is what we engage in you know we have right. to do this we're born into this existence but if we can you know whether through a song or through meditation or through you know study or conduct embrace things like loving kindness compassion right. uh, equanimity and my, the hardest one, I think, in our culture, especially is sympathetic joy. You know, like, oh, I'm so happy mm. for that other guy that Let's got the talk job. talk about that. Yeah, it's sympathetic very... Sympathetic joy, like having joy, intentionally cultivating joy in someone else's happiness. Yeah, it's and very that's difficult. that's the antidote to jealousy. Right. And it is, it is difficult, and it's the opposite of what we normally do. And it's so hard, and social media plays into our jealousy and our mm-hmm. pettiness and our... You yeah, know, it's not just social media; it's our human nature. But um, yeah, it's sort that of on as a practices. The social yeah. media ex- sort of exacerbates it or, or in, intensifies it. I think you know. Oh yeah. So if we look at the four measurables first with equanimity, you know, and an equanimity filled with sympathetic joy, compassion, and loving kindness, it's almost like equanimity is the. It's not a you know it's. The, the the space that holds the other three right. uh, uh, immeasurables, you know. And, and that's how I've been taught, you know. Yeah. yeah. And they're called immeasurables because those states of mind, of equi- equanimity, yeah. loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic, sympathetic joy, joy can become infinite. Right. You can cultivate them infinitely, according and, to the, the Buddhist tradition. Yeah, and it's kind of scary at that edge. I mean, you're talking about you know, in a culture that's competitive, that's rewards, you know, addiction to work and fame and, and uh, riches, you know, it's a plutocracy that we live in here. Yeah. Um, but uh, framed as a uh, capitalistic democ- democracy, um, it's, it's, it's hard to parse that out and say, wow, what if I am equanimous, you know, that I treat friends and relatives and enemies and neutral people that I just see on the street with loving kindness and sympathetic joy. I mean, it seems mm. really crazy, but you see monks and people, you know, we've studied with Lama Tempa, you know, he's very, you know, the economy is almost scary. Equanimity, you know, like, yeah. wow, you're, you're nice to everybody. <laughs> how, how, why, why would you do that? You know, what gain do you have from that? You know, nothing other than the feeling of being a peace mm, gives you peace. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a scary concept to a lot of people when they, when they. I it was scary to me, you know, sitting in meditative equipoise or working with you know my own stuff. Uh, yeah, whether no, it be I in study or you know conduct, uh, and I, I keep referring to conduct in the sort of way of you know. You mean like your way of life, right? And and you know taking refuge in the Buddha and Dharma Sangha, and then also you know I, I uh, took refuge in the. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, uh, and they call them the five mindfulness trainings, you know? And it's hard not to talk about a lot of this stuff because it's it's very, very intertwined, you know, the Buddhist path there, you know? Um, so the mindfulness trainings of, you know, not killing, not stealing, uh, not lying, and not no sexual misconduct, and not uh, ingesting intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. So, Some you know, ethical, ethical guidelines there. Right, exactly. And... Um, and I really appreciate how you say it. it's not it's not like a morality in the sense of um, perhaps Judeo Christian, you know, like oh if you do these you're going to hell. It's like no, well, if you do some kind of action, which is karma, right? If I take some kind of action, there's going right. to be some kind of reaction. There's, there's going to be a result. There's right. going to be a consequence. The, the word karma right. in Tibetan literally means action, right. which is interesting. So and then the the four measurables I think are. Interesting again because they are very human qualities that we that are I think common the universal spirituality different religious traditions talk about, but the Buddhist tradition really emphasizes the equanimity. 
Yeah. And that's kind of the meditation and the kind of, like you're talking about equalness or spaciousness. I think that's emphasized more maybe in the Buddhist tradition than in maybe Christianity, for example. It's very tough, though. I mean, uh, just for people that, you know, have a family or you're just trying to get through life and eat and sleep, you know, you need a place to do that. So not everybody can be a monastic. So Yeah, you know, I've, I've struggled with this and... Um, the lifestyle that you have makes a big difference, but to, for me right now, equanimity doesn't mean in any way tamping down or mm-hmm. suppressing my experience, but rather allowing everything to be fully itself. So, like, I actually feel more intensely now than I used to. Yeah. And that's... Um, that's the kind of scary yeah. nature I'm talking about. It's yeah. like when you open yourself up like that a little bit, it's like, oh, my God, I have this amazing wellspring in my being. Right. Like... Wait, how am I how am I supposed to work with this? Right, you know, our culture or my upbringing or my situation, my social location has not allowed me to work with this and have a skillful means or you know, upaya to to work with that energy. You know, it doesn't culture doesn't really support it unless you're sort of you know in a commune or you know in a monastic setting or you know you're going to school <laughs> in Naropa where it's a bunch of you know sort of hippie kids. But um, it <laughs> it's. It's important, I think, that once you – I think a lot of people realize this after they've done a lot of you know uh, materialistic work. Like, okay, those things are great and, and we can be comfortable you know, with material things. But at some point, you know, how many yachts can you sail behind? You know? it, it, it's just, it's, for me, this gets well, off on a little tangent of like disturbing – like you know, what is it? It's, it's like the 26 billionaires, the richest, 26 richest people in the world yeah. have as much wealth as 4 billion people on the planet. That's wow. half the planet. That's amazing. You know, it's like a couple dozen people have as much wealth as the lowest half of the people on the planet, or lowest yeah, in that, the sense of that financial. That trend of inequality has been, as we know, getting worse and worse, but that's an amazing statistic. Yeah, it's just nuts. I mean, I just read this article, and I guess it cites Jeff Bezos and his, uh, you know, getting divorced from his wife, who's now, you know, one of the billionaires. And um, He was a good person to marry and divorce. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, you know. Um, but that's just so strange in this sort of, you know, in our culture, This I come back to this word plutocracy, which is not a form of government, but it's sort of a uh, socioeconomic, way that we function i mean you look at the current administration i mean it's a bunch of billionaires you know it's just, oh yeah it's very uh well, interesting it's, and it's ironic that trump ran as the kind of anti-establishment candidate yet how many <laughs> goldman sachs people and blah 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 yeah. and are in his thing but i just want to say one last yeah. point about equanimity that in terms of not suppressing it's to me like uh having the insight or recognition that everything is already of the nature of equanimity. Mm, like everything yeah. is already happening. Like if you had a big canvas that was blank and you're throwing different paint on it, no matter what you paint on that canvas, it doesn't change the fact that it's a canvas with paint on it. So like right. if we can open up to our experience <laughs> as it is, how it is, like we don't, you don't need to do anything different to touch on the equanimity. It's already there. It's like a quality of our experience that exactly. we can just, we just need to be aware of it. Equanimity could be, you know, uh, uh, analogous to space you know that space is where all the other things happened you know and and it's our ignorance talking about you know veered into the politics a little bit there's a lot of people that are just trying they're wrapped up with the eight monthly concerns or they're just wrapped up with trying to make a living and they're ignorant of how things really are so they take these things to be real the eight mundane concerns mm. but those things come and go and what's really real it seems like to me from you know i'm no realized master but these immeasurables, uh, you know, that when you do, they seem to be the antidote to these 
you know, uh, sympathetic joys, antidote to jealousy, you know, and the equanimity is the, you know, antidote. There's a whole bunch of near and far, you right. know, uh, uh, sort of enemies to these these yeah. immeasurables. But, you know, I think that, you know, Buddhist teachings, right, talk about ignorance is sort of the root of all those things. Ignorance is the root of attachment and aversion. So if I don't really understand how things are working, whether it be political or financial or, you know, spiritual, I'm, you know, set up for some suffering. And not to say that, you know, moralizing, you know, you're wrong or you're going to hell, you're bad, you know, or it's evil. It's like, well, you could classify it that way, but I you know I always go back to this phrase that uh, I think it was Chagam Trumpa said you know everything is workable like you're saying mm, like that's great. it's not in and of itself it's my perhaps concept and my projecting onto this thing that's making it difficult right if I can view it and work with it in a different way wow maybe it's an opportunity like in the Lojong teachings it says you know make, you turn the obstacles into the path of awakening you make an, like the old phrase you, you make a lemonade out of lemons you know yeah. uh, life gives you lemons make some fucking lemonade right. that's all you can do I mean, what else are you going to do you know <laughs> so I just want to get back to, to you and you were in uh, you grew up in Hawaii but then you were in New York right New York City and yeah, so I, you were struggling some with addiction yeah you know I actually I was born in West Point New York my dad was an economics teacher there after doing uh, two tours in Vietnam and he was a gentleman soldier and uh, then we moved uh, he got a job in the private sector and moved out to Hawaii so I grew up there you know it was amazing growing up barefoot going to school you know and it was a different kind of a culture so uh, being here in Boulder is a little bit more like that you know laid back sunshine kind of thing yeah, so then, uh, like you said, I uh, moved back east with my folks. You know, you tend to follow those people that are clothing and fo- feeding you when you're nine years old, you know. Yeah. So I moved back east, and that was weird, you know, like snow, and I had to wear shoes to school, you know. <laughs> so and in then, Hawaii, no shoes to school? Yeah, I mean, it was awesome out there. You were know, eating fruit off the trees? And... There was. It was like that, you know, lemons right off the... That's awesome. <laughs> right off the branch. So, yeah, I went back east, and, and uh, you know... God bless the people back there. It's just a little, I call them the uptight East Coasters, you know. It's just, there's more people, there's more stuff, you know. There's a sort of a different vibe out there. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, I went to school. I got, uh, I like to say I got my BS and BS. <laughs> I got a degree in philosophy from Northeastern University in Boston. Oh, yeah. And then uh, toured around for years here, you know, playing music uh, off and on and uh, found myself back in New York, actually. And what was that like, like going to bars or... Yeah, you know, and back then I was, you know, I was getting paid well because they were paying us in beer and drugs, you know. <laughs> what, what year are we talking about? This is in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, uh, moved back to New York, got sober, and I started uh, really doing the Rev part of the Rev and Freak Child. I worked uh, with cancer kids for a better part of a decade. Oh, wow. And um, there, uh, the child psychiatrist had worked with Chuck M. Trumpa. Uh, studied with him. He was a Buddhist master. Yes. So he, you know, founded Naropa University, and uh, I actually came out here to play some gigs and do some radio, just sort of a, a break from all the New York City crazy and the girlfriend and the job and everything. I just and um, and I was, you know, I visited Naropa, and uh, this guy, Doctor Mark, had turned me on to. We had this long conversation about Buddhism, and I'm just like standing on the mall in Boulder. After I had visited Europa, I thought, why am I not living out here and studying Buddhism? Yeah. Like, well, it's I, interesting that uh, Colorado, Boulder, it's kind of halfway between New York City and Hawaii. In a yeah, sense. There's a lot true. of crossover. People are always going to Hawaii who live out here. Yeah, I know. I've, I've noticed that, too. I'm like, oh, wow, it must be the sunshine, you know, kind of thing. So you're, um, in terms of your addiction, like how many years do you think you were in active addiction? Well, you know, I, I was like, 
you know, a bunch of, you know, like the kids in the day, you know, smoking a little pot here, drinking at parties, blah, 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 you know. I had a penchant for the psychedelics. You know, I realized that I was always a seeker, you right. know, and I was using the chemicals to find whatever I found, which is kind of hard to explain on that ineffable, you know, psychedelic level. But I realized that it was taking a toll on my body. Physically. Yeah. And I yeah. would, uh, you know, I found myself, you know, tripping out and running around the streets of New York naked and getting arrested. New you York know? City? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> uh, maybe I got to stop doing this, you know, kind of thing. It was yeah. like, I got off on a tangent, you know, it's like almost like being in a psychedelic cul-de-sac. So um, right. there's no denying that because I ingested a lot of LSD when I was in my teenage years. So it really formed a lot of my brain chemistry. And I can't help but, you know, reiterate uh, what uh, Phil Lesh, the bass player from The Grateful Dead, said. He said, you know, I think the world would be a whole much better place if if everybody just turned on, which means, you know, dropped acid. Right. And I just, because I feel like it opened up this, like, whole, you know, realm of, like, these intense concepts. But it was like, for me, what it was like, it was like, the drug was driving, it blindfolded me, drove me to the spot, and then said, look at this. And I said, oh, my God, this is so beautiful. And then it said, okay, blindfold you again, drive you back. So I had no way to get there again. Oh, wow. That's a good I had analogy. no yeah. skillful means until I started sitting on the cushion and I started okay. studying uh, you know, these sort of the aspects of the Buddha's path, you know, the, the samadhi, I started sitting and meditating or so mostly that, concentrating. that's been an integral part of your being sober, of your finding yourself, your path? Yeah, exactly. I mean, sort of uh, not recreating the psychedelic experience, but almost going further, you know, through study and meditation and conduct. You know, I, I was telling, like I was said about my uncle, you know, it's like get on the cushion. It's like LSD was just the, the lobby. You start studying with somebody like, you know, one of the uh, Paul Lapribache or Lama Tempa, you know, or uh, whoever, pick your enlightened master. It's like, they're like, dude, there's like thousands of floors in every direction. Like, you mm. want to get on the elevator with me, man? You know? <laughs> and then you realize it's not even about that. Like, you, you have that immeasurable or unlimited uh, experience just in the ordinary life. You know, you don't even know to need to go to the psychedelic lobby. But, you know, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's easy for me to say because I've had a lot of experience, you know, with, with uh, psychedelic drugs and then also now meditation and uh, study and, uh, you know, the yeah. way of life of, no, of spirituality. I, I appreciate your, your story and your life a lot because there is positive to something like LSD, like you were just saying, and then there is downsides. And when we talk about something like addiction, um, I don't really like that phrase, active addiction, which I just used earlier, but it's like there's adolescence, there's a period of experimentation, there's a time when a lot of people are drinking for the first time or cannabis or whatever it is. And then um, for some people, they that becomes addiction in the sense of causing real life problems. And then some people don't, they just, they move on. Right. Um, well, that was like the great example. You like about- a gray, there's like a gray area. Yeah. And the great example moving on was some, um, I, I, uh, Heard this story about George Harrison going to Haight Ashbury, you know, in the in the early seventies, mm. or it might even been the late sixties, after sort of the whole big boom and all all the hippie kids were going there, and he just said, "Hey, you know, this was the like the doorway. We, we you know, it's not like we're doing this all the time. Doorway, not a lifestyle, maybe. Right? It was like, hey, man, you got turned on. You know, mm. you turn on, tune in, drop out. It's like you don't need that, you know, and God bless Timothy Leary. After a while, he just kept doing it. But look at Ramdas, you know, uh, Richard Albert, right. he became Ramdas and he found a spiritual path. I mean, and, he, and Ramdas still uses LSD, still uses cannabis sometimes. And so I think that there is, 
one of the things I've been exploring on this podcast is what would a middle way look like? Mm. Not prohibition and, and uh, right. not overindulgence, but... For me, it's tough because, you know, I have a couple... You know, I'm already kind of crazy, right? I'm the freak <laughs> child, right? And I'm already, you know, ready to take my clothes off and run around New York City. You okay. know, I need a couple of drinks and one hit of acid. I'm fucking out there, you know, excuse me. But um, most people have a couple of drinks and they're just like, oh, that's cool. For me, it's like the middle path is like much more skewed mm. the other way. So yeah. my... Look at the fifth precept is uh, you know uh, ingesting intoxicants that lead to heedlessness is the 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 line is way way over because I've you know ingested things and gone to jail and I just don't want to do that anymore you know it's like yeah. I, I don't really want to get brought up on uh, charges you know which I've been I've been in prison before you know so it's like well what's what do I need to do to maintain that sobriety which is being in recovery which is if you, for anybody listening, you know, they know that uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program. Right. There's a physical allergy, a mental obsession, and a spiritual solution, which seems, it's so anathema to our culture. Like, what are you talking about? A spiritual solution? You either take some drugs or you get surgery. That's how you get better. It's like, no. Actually, you let all that stuff go and you start to embrace your being and you need a path to do that, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or just taking a walk in the woods. You know, it's like you have to find something that's going to rejuvenate your spirit. You know, uh, for me, that's how that works. I mean, I'm not that's not for everybody, but uh, that seems like the best thing for me. And sometimes it's as easy as just waking up and reading something inspirational, you know, whether it be Dharma or mm. recover literature. And that just it, you talk about state of mind. It yeah. puts my mind in a whole different orientation of perspective, you know. You're talking about waking up in the morning and reading something inspiring. Yeah. That's a that's a powerful practice that's very simple, easy to do. Yeah, and in Christian, uh, you know, history, it's called a meditation. Right. You know, they've sort of switched the meditation and the contemplation, you know, with Dharmic uh, religions, more the contemplation is reading something right. and thinking about it and meditating on right. a That can be it. another way to meditate, reading. Uh, exactly. And like, Lexio Divina, I guess they call it in the Christian right. tradition. Well, there was a, yeah, there's this tradition in Christianity of reading a scripture very closely and sometimes I think over and over again, right? You could, yeah. almost like a mantra, but it's like a prayer, like, well, in, Al- in the famous, what is the famous prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous? Um, yeah, the, the Serenity uh, Prayer. Right, the uh, Niebuhr Prayer. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was a, a 20th century uh, theologian, and it's uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can. Uh, cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference, which is the short form. And then it goes on to say, and I'll pra- paraphrasing here, kind of sort of took the sort of theistic stuff out of it because I'm sort mm. of a practicing Buddhist now. But um, uh, this, uh, you know, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, taking this world as it is and not as I would have it, you know, and then, uh, realizing that if I surrender to my higher power, all will be okay and I'll be relatively happy in this life and supremely happy in the next, you know. Oh, beautiful. I didn't know there was more to it. Yeah, that's And a, I, I didn't know that he wrote it. Can you say that name again? Uh, is it Reinhold Niebuhr? He I'm, wrote the prayer? Yeah, he, oh, okay. he was a 20th century theologian. So, you know, not a lot of people that are even in AA, I don't think, know the long form or know that somebody wrote it. They thought, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's Came like... down from God or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> hey, I'm not arguing. Who am I to say there is no God? You know, I'm not saying that. But for me... Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm making peace with my Christianity. You know, that, that weekend that I took LSD and thought I was Jesus, you know, that kind of mixed me up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's yeah. an interesting experience. Because that, that tends, I, so I now work in the mental health field and mm-hmm. with schizophrenia, with people having mental breaks, there's often a identification with someone like Jesus or it could be Napoleon. It's, right. it's a kind of a, 
like interesting, a, bizarre. I don't know why, what you that, call why it, does that happen? Super ego. Because I met somebody actually in the program recovery that had grown up in India. And he thought he was Buddha for a weekend, tripping on LSD. Oh, I was go. like, oh, my God. I thought it was Jesus. It's a cultural thing, you know? And actually, there's a tune on the new album called uh, – well, we kind of melded two songs. There's an old uh, uh, folk blues, country blues tune called Jesus on the Main Line. Uh-huh. And then there's the personal Jesus tune from the 80s from Dead Pesh Mode. And that was kind of a – you know, constantly working and making peace with my Christianity. You know, it's like I'm not going to deny that. You know, I, I – Grew up with my mom reading to me and my sister out of the Bible every night, and and making us memorize you know passages like First Corinthians or the twenty third Psalm. But when I encountered Buddhism, it seemed to make more sense. And people are like, "Why Buddhism?" I was like, "Well, maybe I was a Buddhist in a past life. I don't know. You know, like the LSD opened it up. Who knows? You know." But the idea of the interdependent nature of reality, and this might get a little heady, is sort of when you realize that there's no need for what Aristotle talked about as a prime mover. You know, there's Hmm. no need for a a, a theos because you realize everything is interrelated, Hmm. that there's no one thing that is causing. It's just a, you know, multitude of causes and conditions that your mind as a human, will never quite the fathom. Right. But you can f- experience with your heart, I think, in meditative equipoise. You know, right. At times you can be like, wow, I am part of the universe. The universe is breathing me. Oh, yeah. Like, whoa. No separation. Yeah, and, and, and technically, I mean, if you want to go to a scientific level, level, you know, it's harder if you really slow down and start to breathe. You realize that, you know, the in-breath is actually easier than the out-breath because the atmospheric pressure is pushing your lungs open, and then you're having to push out the, the air. That's a little counterintuitive. Yeah. Breathing in is easier than breathing out. Because actually the atmospheric pressure wants to fill your lungs, mm. and then... <sighs> Nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> these, yeah, these the scientific point, principles are definitely always at play on yeah. us. You know, but the, the point you're making about interdependent origination and with this old philosophical debate of, like, what is the original cause mm-hmm. and the answer for... A lot of philosophers was God. Like, who, right. you know, what was the original cause? And in Buddhism, it's interesting. They say there isn't one. And one way that I've accessed that myself, and if you're listening to this, you can try this out. If you sit and meditate, you become aware of your thoughts. Eventually, you get lost in your thoughts. And when you have that experience of getting lost in your thoughts, you're not going to be able to remember what that first thought was. And but all the thoughts you're having are connected to the thoughts you had before. You try to trace it back in your memory, and you yeah. can. It's just all of a sudden you're in this matrix, you know, and it's yeah. kind of – that's a microcosm of what the I think the Buddhists are talking about with the macrocosm of, like, all this just is kind of happening, and there actually is no beginning, but there is an end. That's what the third Karmapa said in one of mm. his teachings, that samsara or the world of ignorance um, has no beginning, but it can come to an end. And that's a, something I've sat with for a long time. It's really yeah, and, and you can do that also with the breath, right? Like, where's the beginning of your breath? Where's the end of your breath? You know, right. for me, it's like there are beginning, middles, and ends, but that's a conceptualization. Right. It's me putting on to something like, oh, yeah, there was a beginning in this movie and a middle of the movie and the end of the movie. But wait, I, I walked into the movie – before that, I parked my car and I and then I bought a ticket to the movie. It was at the beginning. Before of the movie? that, you had the thought right, I should go exactly. see this movie. And then afterwards, wait, I'm thinking of the movie in my head. Is is that movie over? I keep on thinking about the movie, but maybe that idea there is that that idea of if I can have the view that wow, that's my 
concept of beginning, middle, and end, that's where the ending of the samsaric suffering is of like like yeah. the concepts yeah yeah like that's gonna come up and wow look yeah, at my brain go let it go yeah, yeah let it go that's the end just let it go yeah but that's an interesting example with the movie like you have the thought i'm gonna go see a movie then you drive there well where did that thought come from well you talk to a friend who said right. it was a good movie or you saw well, a preview did... or yeah it's just if you keep trying to trace it back like why do you want to go see the fucking movie like it's you can't <laughs> find a single reason there's no one answer or maybe it was like a subliminal thing you know you've seen so many advertisements just walking down the street right. i gotta see that movie i don't know why oh because you saw the billboards you know mm-hmm. i feel like that 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 empirical learning is a real big thing too it's like why do I know not to touch the stove? Because I touched it when I was a kid, and I was like, ah, I don't want to do that anymore, uh. you know? So there's some of that, you know? And I studied philosophy, so, you know, you talk about uh, the, the prime mover of Aristotle or Descartes' idea of, you know, I think, therefore I am. You know, these are very uh, Western things. But when I encountered the Dharma, it just blew the doors off of everything. I was like, wow, these Buddhists have been thinking and, and working with ideas and states of being <laughs> millennia you know mm-hmm. it's like you look back at the western philosophers and you're like they're like little they're like adolescent children you're like oh, oh wow but for me when i was younger like that was blowing my mind you know i'd read like david hume who's an english philosopher and i'd been reading all this platonic uh aristotle you know uh stuff about you know there's a uh ideal form behind that you know there's a whole uh Plato's Republic. Right, the ideal forms. Yeah, and the, going into the cave and then coming out in the sunlight. And David Hume has this one phrase that says, everything is what it is and nothing else. And that oh. just blew the doors off of all the platonic thought. Mm. And so that opened up the doorway for me to experience things like the Dharma where it says, you know, just rest in your sense experience. Mm. It's like, oh, it's not just all about my brain. Like my brain is very powerful. And can be conceptual, you know, and we can all agree to stop at a red light and go at a green light, you know, and I need my brain to do that. Right. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on with this human being that I'm experiencing, you know, and that's not the end all be all of the universe, but that's all I got to work with, you know. That's my, my karma, has, I guess, brought me here to this podcast right here to be talking about this, <laughs> you know, you and the, the precious human birth and the luxury of being able to discuss these things with you, man. So, yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I mean, in my own journey, I was really immersed in Buddhism for a long time and have a lot of gratitude. And then now I like appreciating all these different thinkers and philosophers mm. and and there's just so much out there. And I think that there is a lot of profundity in uh, Plato's Platonic ideals and Hume. And Oh, yeah, not to dismiss, think, um, dismiss that, but there's great stuff there. But Yeah, and I think that the – anyway, that's a whole other subject. But I think um, in Buddhism they have the we're, – we're said to be in the desire realm. Mm-hmm. And then there's the form realm and then the formless realm. And uh, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think the form realm might be similar to the Platonic ideals where there's like an ideal or perfect triangle, for example, whatever it is. And, and then it kind of filters down to our level. Right. Um, or fractals. If we start talking about mathematics, sacred right. geometry, the measurements of the Buddha, the way the artwork is portrayed of like um, awakened tankas, mind, yeah. the Tonkas. Right, yeah. yeah. The tankas are the Tibetan paintings. I almost think of that in terms of like uh, the three natures, you know, which is a later uh, third turning kind of teaching. You know, we have the, the, the you know, imaginative nature where we can imagine these things. And then we have the other dependent nature where we start to realize, oh, wow, we're part of this whole thing that we're trying to imagine. Right, and then you have the perfected nature, which is sort of a misnomer. I think a weird translation. It's more like the embodied nature of like, oh, 
I am interdependence. Maybe I can use my imagination to understand interdependence and then I feel it. You know, and I've had that experience, been lucky enough to have that experience in meditative uh, you know, practice a few times of like, oh right. I can use all my intellect and my, you know, uh, form or formlessness, uh, you know, ideas and bring them into how I'm actually acting and living, you mm. know. And then it becomes well, what do I do with that, you know? And it's like, well, just breathe and enjoy it, man. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> I don't know what else to do, you know? Hopefully it... it what do I do with that? That's a good yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's the old Zen thing. What is this? What is this? <laughs> what, what is, is this? this? You know? Yeah, exactly. And then um, maybe this would be a good place to put in some music. Okay. We just came out with this new album. It's called Dial It In. Mm-hmm. And part of what you did, in my understanding here, is your own songs of realization so to speak right like we were talking about earlier where singing these songs it's more meaningful than just maybe something you would hear on the radio to you it's like it has a deeper meaning and it helps you to like the the act of singing it in itself is a practice right so studying some of these listening yeah well both of them because you're uh you know, in my study of the Dharmic stuff and uh, sort of paralleling the study of just secular music, let's say, you know, and also religious music, um, trying to, you know, grasp a concept and the ultimate irony is like grasping the idea of that you don't really want to be grasping anything because that's going to be causing you suffering. You know, let's grasp <laughs> that idea. Anyway, um, the idea of like trying to incorporate these things subtly into a tune that's still hip and cool you know it's a great tune but there's like oh wow if i listen to the lyrics it's hipping me to some deeper ideas you know so i think the songs of realization are doing that and there's a great tradition you know i've written some papers on this and done some reading and listening um even the buddha um according to compa social and scotso's book here the stars of wisdom um encourages students to put the teachings into verse and to sing them yeah and to sing these things i mean and then kempo talks about how it's it's easier to remember them, like we talked about mm-hmm. before. It's also easier to access them because he was saying, and this is an extreme example, I guess, you're on your deathbed. You're like, oh, what did it say in that sutra? I can't remember that sutra. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, I got the song. Oh, you know, like a dream, like an illusion, you know. Uh, you know, so they're part, become part of your being, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and, gonna... and I think anybody can do that, that do this, you know, um, because – and I'll read this quote from Chagam Trumpa, if I may, like yeah, about, please. you know, this was a big turning point for me about, do I sing other people's songs of realization? Because I know this guy, Jim Scott, who wrote a bunch of these tunes, uh, you know, Kempit Soltrum Gatso came up with, you know, like all these forms, all these forms, appearance, emptiness. And I thought, well, who is he to write a song of realization? Hmm. And there's this good quote by uh, uh, Chagam Trumpa that talks about, you know, and I think anybody that's taught something knows that having to teach it, you have to learn it more, you know, right. or being, I have worked in rehabs as a spiritual advisor. I realized I had to up my spiritual game so I could be spiritually present for people that were in re- trying to recover, you know. Right. And that's a beautiful, positive feedback loop. If you can find that in your life and start to tap into it where you right. do something you love and you get some feedback and you start. It's almost like the Bodhisattva path, right? Like, wow, these people are challenging me to better myself. Right. That's a good kind of challenge. So uh, actually, Chagam Trumpa in this uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, lecture uh, that was just transcribed here, he's talking about the Milarippa, who was this 
he was kind of a loner, Milarepa, wasn't he? He was like a meditator in caves in Tibet. And yeah, so Milarepa is one of the most famous uh, yogis or meditators from Tibet. And he was famous for being in solitude in a cave, very high up alone. His name literally means cotton clad. Oh, really? Yeah. So the Mila, it was the um, he he just wore this little shawl of cotton, and there's like snow all around his cave, and, and he ate nettles, right? That's why he was kind of bluish. And he turned green, right? Bluish green from eating uh, these wild nettles he cooked in a big pot, right? So he's like this Mahasiddha, this great adept, you know, Very meditation and, person. And yeah. he would come down out of the mountains and and sort of recite these songs, as they called them, uh, right. a realization, and people were like, "Oh my God, yeah, that's right. that's." Yeah, he's got it, you know. But, but earlier in his life, uh, people really mocked him and made fun of him. And I think that's an important, yeah. like, just thinking about his life story because he had a really tough life. And he right. went up and was meditating alone. And it's not like everybody was bowing down to him. They were like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Like, why are you naked? Right. Like, how are you surviving in the snow? Is that him, too? Like, and, when he was uh, a then child? Then later he became famous. and There was, like, that whole story where he's a child and, like, he his father died and then he had went into his uncle's custody yeah. and the old uncle took all the money yeah. and he brought down all this like sort of death onto the, that killed everybody and then went away. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of the story of the evil uncle. Um, right. And he was impoverished and the uncle took everything and uh, him and his mother were suffering a lot and they weren't being cared for. And he did, according to the story, did this black magic and this hailstorm came down and killed a bunch of people, including, I think, including his uncle. I don't right. forget the details, but, then later he became a, a meditator, Dharma person. and Right, he goes to some hermitage where a woman takes him in and teaches him sort of the ways of meditation or something like that. Some tikini gives him um, some Well, he realized, he realized the error of his ways and he was filled with lots of regret. And right. He was kind of mea culpa, like, I'm such a terrible person, I killed these people. And then he met Marpa. Marpa right. was his great master. Oh, Marpa right. gave him... Uh, teachings and he purified his negative karma. So this is very uh, a good uh, uh, example for me. I was running and drugging and jiving for years, you know, and finally I hit bottom. And like my sponsor says, you know, where your bottom is is where you decide to stop digging. You know, I was like, oh, I got arrested <laughs> one more time. I'm in jail naked again. What 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 happened, man? That's a good you know? quote. And so I kind of woke up to the fact that oh, I can end this suffering by you know not putting these chemicals into my body anymore. I've got the the realization from them, right. I think. But to get to that point, you had to reach bottom. That's a big deal on the a it's lot of addiction. It's almost like a, 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 a you know a drug nundro, if you will. You know, like I had to <laughs> do all the prostrations of you know jail and beat myself up with drugs for you know two decades. You know, and uh, telling youngsters, you know, I'm, I got sponsors that are 18 years old. Like, you don't have to do this, dude. You know, you don't have to. You know, be snorting Adderall and smoking drugs. You know, it's like. You can just enjoy your life, you know. So anyway, to 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 you know, I can say that on the other side of the shore here a little bit, you know, of like, hey, you don't need to do that, but I went through that, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah. but this idea of like teaching helps one learn, you know, sort of strange. So Chagam Chopra uh, talking about um, uh, Milarepa, who we talked about in these uh, hundred thousand songs, uh, he says it is quite important in the development of oneself that at a certain stage, a person must try to impart his knowledge to others. By doing that, it is not based on self-consciousness and ego. If one is teaching correctly and directly, then this is one of the ways of training oneself. And in many cases, this is happening in the lives of great teachers. In Milarepa's life, he is being forced to teach. He's being forced to talk to people and impart his knowledge to others, and certain situations force him. He can't avoid doing it. 
which is also a creation of the Dakini Force. Ooh, that's a mm-hmm. whole other conversation there. <clears throat> anyway, one learns to deal with the situations so one can learn from others. The teacher, in this case, is one of the students on the path. He doesn't have to be completely enlightened. So that was very helpful for me to hear hear that. You know, like, I don't have to be this great Mahasiddha to start writing my own songs of realization. You know, I knew yeah. about the eight, you know, we talked about the eight mundane concerns and the four uh, uh, measurables. And I thought, man, I'm going to write a tune about that. And it was for my own, you know, path. I was like, I'm going to write a tune so that when I'm playing a show, right. even though people aren't hip to this, I can remember the stuff. It's cool for me. I mean, I, I wrote this other yeah. tune called All I Got Is Now, which was remembering the, the four thoughts that turn one's mind towards the Dharma. And it was about, you know, yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery, and all we got is now, you know. And keeps, I kept nice. like, keep forgetting that out somehow, you know, which was the joke. But, the, you know, the first wor- verse was about um, precious human birth, the sex, second verse was about uh, impermanence which is really you know death uh third verse about karma fourth verse about samsara you know so it was a way for right. me to to and those are called the four thoughts that turn the mind towards the dharma right yeah the preciousness of this lifetime yep impermanence everything is dying everything will end everything changes right uh karma action action things yeah. have consequences yeah there's <laughs> and then cause the suffering and effect. of samsara which sounds more buddhist but Again, it's it's just that life has suffering that we're right. stuck in this. When we when we have another way to put that for me would be when there's this uh, belief in separation, then we suffer. Right. Well, the ultimate example for me is you're in a casino. Oh. This ultimate separation there, like I don't have the money. There's the money. I want the money. The you know they, <laughs> they're pumping in nitrous oxides to pipe you up a little bit. Every smoking, you know, there's like women and craziness and drugs, and you're like woohoo! There's the roulette wheel. Woohoo! Spin around, around. <laughs> you know, they talk about some sorrow, like going round and round, round like that. Well, let's so, play. Let's play one of your songs. Sure. Well, maybe we'll go, we'll play dial it in. We've been talking about songs of realization and and the eight mundane concerns and the four measurables. You know, this was a tune that I uh, I wrote uh, on the highway. Don't try this at home, kids. You know, I was I I'd been visiting the Woody Guthrie Museum and I was we had recorded the the instrumental stuff for this and I was working on sort of a tune about you know listening to a, a DJ you know dialing it in and and feeling better that I'm listening to a song. So there I was, you know, just driving out in the wilds of uh, Oklahoma, nobody around on this straightaway highway, and uh, there I was on my cell phone, you know, just <laughs> shouting down things about the eight uh, mundane concerns. So it's really about, you know, driving down the highway and you're feeling bad, and then you start turning on the radio and you feel better, and then you think, wow, maybe I'll, now that I've been a, become aware of these eight mundane concerns, maybe I can, you know, look a little deeper or feel a little deeper into the four measurables. But anyway, we got uh, my old friend G-Love, Garrett Dutton uh, playing a little harmonica and singing backup, and also Hazel Miller, who's a local wonderful soul singer here in the front range. So it became a really great track. Well, now I'm packing in the crossroads of my mind while the highway hums with the rhythms of time. Got a troubadour sense of the coincidence cruise Rambling on the river in a highway blues Gonna drive till I get lost and found again Gonna turn on the radio and dial it in Doing about 70, 80 miles an hour I'm feeling the sound and the road transpower Dial it in All night long Rolling tunes With the radio on Dial it in Gonna be alright the darkest hours, right before the light, 
Beautiful. I love that darkest hour before the light. Yeah, darkest hour is right before the light. It's going to be all right, people. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's like, I mean, the blues was all about uplifting people. You, it's, it's sad lyrics, but then you feel better, right? Exactly. You know, that's the essence, I think, of the blues. You know, it's like, wow, I'm feeling bad right now. But if I sing a little song about it, it's, it's like almost like Buddhism. Like, wow, the awareness of it actually hmm. is the first step to making me pop out of this yeah. suffering. You know, and, it's you're, the, and you're sharing it with the world. Yeah, and that's the other thing. And then, you know, uh, I'm singing it, and I'm listening to it, other people are listening to it, they're bringing the energy to me saying, sing more about that, you know. Yeah. And the blues is very much like that because it has an A-A-B format. You know, you have the, I'll sing a line, then we all repeat that line, and mm-hmm. then there's a, a line that rhymes with that, sort of brings a little wisdom right. to it, you know. So it's a wonderful art form, you know, um, but uh, definitely steeped in a lot of suffering, not just, you know, uh, the suffering of being a human, but uh, a lot of cultural suffering. Racism and uh, the history of the South. And that yeah, just wrapped up with the socioeconomic, you know, uh, uh, times there. And uh, yeah, but it's also amazing in the sense that, you know, you could you could take everything from uh, the African-Americans, but you couldn't take the songs out of their heads, you know. Mm. He couldn't take those melodies. He couldn't take those rhythms. And I think that uh, also, you know, which to a, to a much lesser degree, uh, um, uh, the Native Americans are not attributed to, you know, that, you know, you talk about techno music. I mean, where is it? Four on the floor. You know. Nice. I never thought you know, about that. That's right. That's trance the, music. Yeah, it's it it's takes you to an altered state. It's the drum beat. It's yeah. the rhythm. It's repetitive. It, <clears throat> so to uh, yeah. embrace that as the sort of foundation, and then you sort of have these African rhythms and and uh, melodies put on top of that, and then you have you know the American melting pot. Then you have all these fiddle tunes and English you know hymns right. coming across the pond from Northern Europe. Mm. You know, and that's amazing. And you get jazz. You know, right. and it's it's an, it really is. I mean, from uh, you know, just the times I've, I've, I've traveled overseas, you know, America's beautiful that way. And it took the music going across back across the ocean <laughs> to be people being like, "Wow, this is amazing." And then, of course, the Americans were like, well, "This is in your backyard. What are you talking about?" You know. Uh-huh. So um, that's interesting. I think it's amazing. I think it's hard for us as Americans to appreciate our culture, our country, and our history is. It's ups and it's downs. I mean, we have a lot of positives and a lot of negatives, yeah. but it's we've created some. There's some beautiful art that's come come out of here. And yeah, um, I like. Didn't you have a, a Native American uh, gentleman on one of your songs? I do. My uh, my shaman, although he didn't want to be listed that way. Too many <laughs> times they've been, you know, too much has been stolen from them. So yeah, my buddy Hadrian, he. Uh, uh, he owed me some money, so he, I said, why don't you just come <laughs> re- record on a track, man? He said, okay, cool. So he does a little Cloud Pierce and uh, – what does he call it? Cloud Pierce and uh, – what is it? How is it listed on the album? Cloud Pierce and Overtone Voice yeah, cool. on uh, Opus Space. You wanna, why don't we play that for a minute? Yeah, that's great. Just... And that's got actually a little chanting, Buddhist uh, chanting of the old Sanskrit, uh, the Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate sort of. Let's oh, cool. go beyond, way beyond, way, way beyond our oh. mind. That's a very ancient everything. Buddhist chant from the yeah. Heart Sutra. Yeah. And so I've that's... heard it translated, gone beyond, gone beyond, gone way beyond, gone way, 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 way beyond. Kind of like what you just said. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Yee-hee, wow.
Classic blues with uh, just the vocal going over it like that. I didn't know. I didn't realize he was uh, Native American. Yeah, that's Hadrian. He's uh, he's been chanting in ceremony since he was a kid. So yeah, he just came in and he it was actually pretty wild. <laughs> Low grumble, you know. Hugh, uh, who was recording the session, he uh, you know put the levels to that, and then all of a sudden he did that. Ah! It was like everything was like, oh my god. I mean, I got I got chills when he did it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was the uh, you know, and that idea we um, start out not on the vinyl but on the actual CD. Uh, we start out with Opus Earth, and there's a lot of backwards tracks and you know Earth sounds and nuts, and that's Opus Space. So you know, talking about you know, sort of we are these people in between the Earth and the sky. You know, mm, here beautiful. we are, these humans of both you know worlds, sort of caught in between these worlds trying to make the most of it or the best of it or whatever yeah. yeah earth and sky there's nothing more human than making music yeah you know it's sort of entertaining ourselves here while we're on the planet I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's i think it's more than that i think the vibrations and the the rhythms and the melody and the expression and there's so much in it yeah and it's on that uh line of you know sort of conceptual non-conceptual you know you're yeah like, oh, wow, yeah. And that's why I think that the songs of realization can be a real contemplative practice. You know, it's like, Absolutely. you know, we have them in the book here, you know, you get Saraha or the songs of Naropa or Milarepa, you know, um, but they're on the page, you know, to bring them to life. Bring them to life. The voice, singing. the breath, life, inspiration, yeah. inspiring, breathing in, breathing out. You know, it makes me think about, um, we've been talking a lot about the Buddhist teachings. In, in Buddhism, they make a big deal about the six senses that we have. Mm-hmm. Seeing hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting, and then the six senses are mind or consciousness. Mm-hmm. But um, the sense of hearing, it's one that we can't actually turn on or off. Yeah. it's We're always hearing. And I, I once went on a Zen retreat and the the Zen master leading it said, his, his meditation instruction was listen, mm. listen. And we sat in silence and, and he just said, listen. And we just sat there for... Pretty much the whole day before it's, he spoke again. It was, I mean, the first day was just meant to just be a meditation day. And it's listen. pretty amazing, you know. And, you know, there's people like John Cage that have been influenced yeah. by the Zen tradition, and he's always talking about there's a sound behind the sound, always. You know, mm. and there's this great interview where he's being interviewed in his Fifth Avenue apartment, and then they stop the conversation, and then you hear the traffic going by on Fifth Avenue. You know, and uh. it's like, well, what's the sound behind that? And there's actually, um, I think that's how you pronounce Saramgara Sutta about um, there's all these teachings on different ways towards liberation a lot of times it's like study right or we were talking about practice the sitting or you know there's the guy we've been talking a lot about conduct you know the way that we move through this world you know with our body and our speech and our mind but this idea of we're always listening and there's this teaching with you know ananda says you know oh you know listening is everything or it seems to be you know something like listening is part of the path and of course the buddha goes well listening's all the path you know it was like one of those you know ananda's always like the, the straight man to buddha you know or whatever but <laughs> anyway for those of us that are uh, you know students of the dharma have read a lot of these suttas you know ananda his is a cousin and is an attendant um and he's uh, I guess he was the guy who memorized all the suttas, right? Right. He must have listened very well. Right. There According you to go. the exactly. tradition, he, <laughs> he remembered all the words and then right. wrote them down later. So he, he recounts this teaching from the Buddha where the Buddha rings this bell and he asks the monks, the bhikkhus, he says, do you hear that? And they all say, yeah, we hear that. And then he stops the bell and he says, do you hear that? And they go, 
no. And he goes, let me play it again. So he brings the bell. Yeah, we hear it. He stops the bell. No, we don't hear it. He's like, you don't understand. Listening is not about hearing. It's about that you're always listening. Hmm. You know, you're always perceiving, you know. And just because Hmm. things arise and seemingly, you know, decay, that doesn't mean that your listening has gone away. You know what I mean? So that's I think that's a it's an appropriate teaching for the ear because it's always open. I mean, you can put earplugs in there or whatever, you know. But you'll hear if you pay attention. There's there's some something you're hearing. Right? Yeah, there's something going on. And and even with uh, it's interesting. We think that we have our eyes open and we see things, and we close our eyes and we see nothing. But if you pay attention, if you close your eyes, there's something going on there. There's a oh, little yeah. red lights, or for me, like reddish, yellowish. I always get those floaters going. Little by. Little floaters. So we can't really turn it off somehow. Yeah. And I think that was for me, you know, as being a drug addict, I was like thinking I was going someplace and turning on to something, but it was turning off a lot of other stuff. Huh. So it was just another adventitious thing that I put onto the path. There's always a lot of delusion. Why put another extra layer on there? You know, it's mm. like the drugs were doing that. Yeah. And so when you say drugs, like what drugs specifically are you talking about for you and your? Well, you know, my mom was an alcoholic, so, you know, I was like, I'm not going to be one of those fucking alcoholics, man, they fucking fucked up. You know, and then I'd start drinking when the sun went down, you know, and then whenever psychedelics came through town, I'd just eat as much as those as I could, you know. So I knew to stay sort of away from the heavy drugs, you know. I never shot dope or, you know, I just snorted cocaine, smoked it a couple times, you know, it was the 80s, what are you going to do? It was everywhere, you know. <clears throat> different time but you know it, like we were talking about before it's not necessarily the reference object you know what we're talking about here is like there's a, a an ear sense a right. faculty and there's a sound and there's an ear consciousness between that so if right. you're doing drugs there's a reference object there's a drug and then there's me and there's sort of the interaction between those the so, relationship right so the relationship for me was like wow this is toxic like I'd take a couple of drinks and I'm in jail. Somebody else could take a couple of drinks and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go to sleep, you know? Right. It's the relationship. It's the interaction. Right. It's, it's you how, can't blame this outer object. Exactly. You can't blame and I think the outer that's, the, yeah. that's the big reason, you know, that and the socioeconomic reason of the drug use, you know, it's like, geez, look like the Sackler family's like dealing oxycodone, making billions of dollars and they're yeah. putting, you know, African-American young kids in jail for, you know, slinging rock, you know, it's like what is going on? You know, it's like, it's all about, you know, is it legal or is it illegal? Is it controlled substance? I mean, they, they outlawed marijuana in Texas, you know, years ago. I mean, this is uh hundred years ago to control the Mexican population. I mean, this is just a yeah. fact. The history know? of the drug war is incredibly racist. The origins, yeah. the the start of it in the 1930s was in it's late ridiculous. 20s, I think. I, I learned a little bit more of the history lately. And, and it's uh, very disturbing. And the hypocrisy of the drug culture. I mean, LSD was used. Uh, Robert Hunter was reading this article. Robert Hunter, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead, he took LSD way before anybody in the Grateful Dead, because he was part of a government testing of oh, really? LSD in the mid sixties or early sixties, because they were trying to use it as a weapon. They were trying to weaponize it. You know, oh, give it to the enemy. In, history. Yeah. So yeah. you know the the. The drug culture, you know, you go to Europe and, and you know, they have things like Needle Park. You know, it, it's a health issue. It's not a moral or a socioeconomic right. issue. Specifically in, I think, Switzerland and Portugal, they right. have made uh, public health programs where you can go and get heroin if you are an addict. And the, yeah. they will give you 100% medically pure heroin, clean needles. Um, it's this amazing program and it's worked really well. They have yeah. way less violence, way less crime. And uh, people are less addiction. That's the amazing part, yeah. less addiction. Yeah, and, and that's the idea there, that <clears throat> they're embracing it as a disease. You know, right. like this person that has cancer, you know, you're not going to blame them. You're going to try to treat them, you know. Well, the, this the, person, role, the role of guilt and shame yeah. and how we um, 
make addicts feel so ashamed. Right. And Which how just that drives feeds right back into yeah. their their issue that oh it's you know if you if you take that guilt and shame out and you say well the paradigm here is a disease you know they're suffering under this thing that's beyond their control then wow let's treat them you know. But if you put the guilt and the shame on it, which is part of the disease of addiction, it just creates a whole bunch more, you know, things that you have to work with. And everything's workable, but, you know, geez, that's a lot of yeah. stuff to unpack. I mean, the, if, you're, if, you're, if you're experiencing a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of regret, a lot of self-negativity, I'm so terrible, I'm more. so bad. That makes yeah exactly. That makes you want to use more because that's the one thing that's going to turn all that negativity off exactly. for a moment. But yeah. then it comes back even worse, and then exactly. that's the cycle. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's not to say that some people can you know take a toke every once in a while or to have a drink. You know, geez, Louise. But for me, you know, just I, uh, they say in the program, you know, it's like I became, you know I drank so much, I did so many drugs, I became a pickle. There's no going back to being a cucumber for me. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's just not physically possible. <laughs> so I find that you know. Uh, the best way for me to stay out of jail is to, to stay sober, and the way to do that is the path of uh, AA. You know, and and there's a eleventh step which really asks us to seek through prayer and meditation to forge this conscious conscious contact with our higher power. And for me, that's you know making peace with my Christianity, uh, practicing my Buddhist path, and also being open to all faiths and all non faiths. So important in today's world. Yeah, because we're getting to be a globalized community. I right. mean, you know, this podcast, people will be, could be listening in China or Vietnam or, you know, Argentina, you know. It's like yeah, it's possible. all across the United States, you know. It's a, it's a global community now. You yeah. Know? What, what would you, like, what for you does the word higher power, like, what does that mean to you? I don't know. You know, it's funny because, you know, we've been invoking some of our teachers here in the lineage, you know, the Kagyu lineage of, uh, uh, that, you know, we've been studying in Buddhist Europa. Lineage. Yeah, Buddhist lineage. Um but I remember Lama Tempa talking about, you know, he was teaching us how to do Tonglin for people that are listening. It's a sort of more a little little bit of an esoteric, counterintuitive practice of, you know, taking in sort of the negative energy and then pushing out sort of positive energy. But the idea is that you put Avalokiteshvara, which is the, you know, the Buddha of compassion or the one that sees all the suffering in the world or hears all the suffering in the world, mm. you know. Um, and that's the filter, so I remember Lama Tempa saying, oh, you, you know, you put Avalokiteshvara or, you know, Jesus or God or your higher power on your head, you know, and then that becomes the filter. Mm. So it's like something that I think it's like I make the analogy to, you know, and I've heard this analogy made to for the Dharma or any kind of spirituality. Like a religion is a recipe, right? And But you got to bake your own bread. Like if you're a Christian and you don't go to church or if you don't, you know, pray or if you're a Buddhist and you don't sit and meditate or study or, mm. you know, live the precepts <clears> – <throat> Um, that's not going to feed your soul, right? Or lack thereof, your selflessness, you know, if you're a Buddhist or whatever. But, you know, that's the recipe. But you got to cook your own bread, you know? So for me with AA, it's like a lot of times I'll have this philosophical conversation like this that are just wonderful, you know? It's theology and uh, Buddhology and all that stuff. But it comes right down to it. It's like, what's your spiritual practice? It's like, yeah, I sing and play guitar, and that's an amazing outlet, and I meditate. But I go to AA every day. That's my, like, I sit there. That's oh, well, the ritual, beautiful. you know? So I sit there, and it's like a meditation for an hour, you know, and I listen to other people struggling with their problems, offering their experience, strength, and hope, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, here's the recipe in the book. Here's the, here's the song of realization, but until we sing it, I don't think it's, it's not coming alive, right? Mm. And you the know? community, to me, AA, the, the power of it is the community, actually. Big time. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a letter that Carl Jung, famous uh, right. 
wrote to, they had a correspondence back and forth, uh, him and uh, Bill W. from the program of Alcoholics The, the founder of AA. Right. Um, and he talked about these two things, like you either needed a psychic change or a, a, a spiritual experience that you know, sort of was your higher power in answer to your question, or you needed this spiritual community to community. act as a yeah. wall against, you know, uh, you know, you know, for lack of a better word, you put it in a Christian context, temptation or suffering or sin or whatever. It's like for the path that, you know, I'd sell it to kids that are coming into the program, you know, like, oh, I'm smoking weed, man. It's not a drug. I'm like, well, why are you spending so much money on it? And it's like it doesn't matter. It's 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 a non-issue. Do you want to live a lo- different lifestyle? You can be part of this community hmm. and we can learn how to live without doing drugs and going to jail and spending a bunch of money on drugs that you don't want to be doing anymore. You know right. what I mean? So I think that's where it gets mixed up a little bit where like people are like, well, if you're in recovery, then you think all drugs are bad. It's like, no, man, like I got no opinion on that. For me, I just don't put them into my body because it's a good way of staying out of jail. (laughs) (laughs) For you personally, I I like I love uh, the way you're saying that because it's taking away the moral moral judgment and you're acknowledging that some people can use in healthy ways and some, you know. Yeah, and I part of, part of being human is using these substances, so we don't need to demonize it. Right, and I can't, you know, this was a big challenge for me. You know, I worked uh, as a spiritual advisor in a rehab, and the guy was like, you know, I'm not doing drugs anymore, but I'm still going to eat some mushrooms every once in a while. And I just was like, uh, you know, it was like, I can't say anything because that stuff opened up a lot of stuff in me. But the thing is that those are very unstable. You know, sitting on the cushion might take 20 years to have a realization, but it's mm. very stable. You know, you can get off that mm. cushion anytime. You ingest psilocybin in your body. Dude, you're on an eight-hour flight, bro. There's no – there's no kind of, you know. You don't know where you're going. Yeah, exactly. You're on a journey. Well, with sitting, the stability is a great point, and it's also uh, more, you know, internally generated. Right. So to speak. I mean – and that's why I think songs of realization are like that too. Like, hey, let's sing something, yeah. you know. And you can sing it in community, you know, like choirs or you sing in hymns or songs of realization. Well, I, I, I personally believe if we help create a culture that has a more integrated culture with, mm. with more spirituality, with more community, with more connection, we could use things like psilocybin mushrooms in a more ritualistic way. I think there would be less addiction. I think I'm telling the you, addiction man, is coming from the lack of connection. That was one of my mistakes. You know, I was like, you know, tripping on, tripping out on a Tuesday night, you know, drinking. Mm. And it was just like, whoa, this is not sacred. I'm not, you know, the, the time before that, I was up in the uh, Canadian Rockies, you know, uh, ingesting massive amounts of uh, mushrooms. And I had an amazing experience. But mm. the setting, know, yeah. yeah, set and setting, like uh, Timothy Leary talks about, you know, set of mindset and the setting that's around you. But, you know, if you're not respecting, that's a very, very, uh, intense heavy you know it's uh, it's like men doing mental gymnastics you know if you're not trained in that stuff you can get off the rails real quick you know so end up worse off than where you were before yeah unfortunately right it's a possibility it's that's what happened to me i mean i I ingested this stuff when i was a teenager so it's sort of shaped my well and that's that's an important point because your mind your brain the physical brain and nervous system is still developing until we're 24 25 some scientists are now even saying 29 30 Right before we're a adult, and that's one of the you know where do you draw the line? But the fact is, until you're at least in your twenties, your brain, your nervous system is developing. Sure, taking uh, these you know so. And you're actually, you, I think you can still change your local Denver sites in your mind until you're about fifty-five. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you know, there's neuroplasticity, but this sort of become part of my consciousness or part of my you know way that I see the world because I. But I do have to say, it's like a trauma. Taking LSD at that age and freaking out like I did, it's like a traumatic event, you know? Yeah. So the, the freaking out part, was that maybe lack of support, the sudden setting? 
all of that. All yeah. of it together. Maybe maybe um, and not preparing, doing just, just doing it too often. It's also, you know, part of me is like, well, it's my relationship to this chemical, but it's also the chemical. I mean, geez, I'm, I'm eating some blotter acid that, you know, some guy named Vinny in some basement in New Jersey made, you know. It's well, like, like, who what knows? was the intention they had with right, it? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, was it just commerce? You know, they wanted to sell drugs or it's like, did they really want to turn you on or what happened, you know? <laughs> I think that I think that part's important too. People right. don't think about that where it's coming from. Right. Yeah. How it's made, the purity. I mean, that's part of the problem with it being illegal that we right. don't know. Yeah, and that can be you know a big problem too. But I mean, you got pharmaceutical companies making really pure stuff too. So, you know, I, I just think that you know, in a, a dharmic sense, you know, these and this word adventitious, you know, sort of added on things that are sort of getting in between me and my spirituality or whatever. So. For me now, it's like seeing these things as one more thing that I need to let go. If I if I take LSD and it gets me to point X, and then I don't know how to get there, you know, it's like it's like taking the elevator, but I don't know what it really feels like to climb the stairs. So for years now, you know, uh, I've been learning how to take the stairs, you know, yeah. and, and doing my own work. And right. I know how hard it is to actually get to these places. You know, it's, there's no easy road there, you know, um, that, that's a super important point. Climbing the stairs, doing the groundwork, being grounded. And I've been a part of spiritual communities and teachings and been there myself where through yoga, meditation, certain teachers and their, I don't know, charisma, power, whatever you want to call it. You can kind of have these kinds of experiences, potentially glimpses. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, you got to climb the stairs. So I think, I think all, pretty much everything we're saying about drugs could be true of spirituality as well. Like you can use meditation as a escape, as a um, trying to just jump, you know, trying to just pop into, you know, non-dual awareness, blah, blah. Right, right, right. And use it as a drug. But what you're talking about, you know, you're talking about doing the work here or having these experiences. Those are just another sort of reflection of the ego. Like, wait, is this for me? Or is this like embracing the immeasurables that are deeper and helping all sentient beings, you know? Mm -hmm which I'm one of them, you know, that's what I think is so great about the Buddhist path, you know, that, that, you know, I'm kind of realizing aware of my ignorance. And then the real solution is like, wait, how do I help myself and others to reduce some of this suffering? You know, like I never got that with Western philosophy. It was always like, we're going to figure it out. We're going to be the best, you know, I'm going to get the highest, you know, it's Mm. like, okay, that's great. But Compassion, emphasis on yeah. compassion. That's really, I've had many of my Buddhist teachers say, this is what makes something Buddhist or not Buddhist. Is is there a motivation of compassion? Yeah. If we're talking about quote unquote Mahayana Buddhism, um, that's what makes it, that's what makes it like real yeah. compassion or not. And so and with that understanding, and I love that with that, because with that understanding, anything could fit into that. If it has the right motivation, it doesn't have to have the outward garb of a certain tradition or religion. Or, yeah. But do you want to go ahead and read? You're going to read another sure. thing? You know, um, there's a bunch of books here that we've, we've got in our library here. You know, there's this Stars of Wisdom books uh, that's attributed to Kempo Solstrom Gatso, but really written by his students. It's got a lot of stuff about, you know, why sing. and But I think maybe that's a lot of commentary. Maybe shall we read some actual these songs of realization? Yeah, let's read the actual songs. Let's do it. Let's try to read let's one of these. A little says, bit of it. Let's see. Uh, you know, there's I, this. I got one right here. Okay, good, good. So this is... Um, this is the songs of Naropa, who was a great uh, meditator from India. Yeah, he was the the, the abbot, the head abbot at uh, the Lana University, which was like yeah, the, the, old, the world's oldest university. Huge school, uh, In, um, six centuries, India. I think it went on. And then he got visited by this Dakini that said, you know, you're not really practicing any of this stuff. You just know it. You right, know you the words. The intellectual knowledge, but not the real meaning. Not the real sense. So then he went out on this whole path and studied with Naropa, yeah. I guess. So anyway, after... Uh, 
many years of hardship and meditation, he sang this song. All these apparent and existing phenomena are nowhere apart from mind, your own awareness. Since it perceives and is cognizant, it is like experience that is self-known. If this mind was not like that, there would be no link and therefore no experience. This is how I have established the relative. Understand that all phenomena are based on mind. The very basis of phenomena, which is mind essence, can be analyzed, dissected, and so forth. But this naturally luminous mind and the momentary defilement of thought, these two, whether they are one or different, is a topic of extreme profundity. Those scholars explain, I shall not write about it here. And he goes on and on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's serious <laughs> profundity, man. I mean, So it's, it's called a song, but when we read it, and with this translation in this language, it sounds like uh, philosophy, and it's actually considered very high teachings that mm. take a lot to understand. But the, the first thing he says is everything is mind, right? Yeah. Understand all phenomena are based on mind. Yeah, and that's the first line of the Dhammapada, right? Like how we think and affects how what we do, you know. Right. All actions and speech are preceded by mind, you know. Um, so it's just, I mean, yeah, I was reading through a bunch of these songs of realization and you think, wow, I don't know what, what they're talking about. But I guess the idea is, you know, it's like singing a Christian hymn, you know. You, you sing it a couple times, you're like, well, at least I'm singing it. Maybe it'll rub off, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I, I remember that part of that song. Maybe this is what how this relates to. Anyway, this was the first song or official, you know, song of realization, which we were sort of talking about in a broader way of like writing your own song of realization or bringing some of the teachings onto the path in a musical way. But this one, I don't, you probably got taught this one too. The, the, the all these forms they call it the self-appearing illusion, and it yeah. goes all these forms appear in emptiness like a rainbow with a shining glow in the reaches of appearing emptiness. Just let go and go where no mind goes. So, you know, the, and it goes on. There's more Beautiful. verses about, you know, let the ear go, let the eye go and everything. I got to work on my singing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, this idea of the mind, you know, is just paramount in, in Buddhism. You're working with the mind. Well, and I want to say something about that real quick. Um, the question if everything is mind or if there's things outside of mind is not what I, I don't think that's what Naropa is really talking about there. I think it's that mind is the one thing, our consciousness, our own state of mind, our own consciousness is the one thing that we can work with. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that we know. Yeah. It's the one thing we experience and it's the one thing that enables us to make choices this way or that way. Amen. So that's kind of the basis. That's kind of the start. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the start, it sounds like almost an ending there. Yeah, it could be that too. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. This has been really fun. It's great. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit our Patreon page. Just search for A State of Mind at patreon.com or visit our website, astateofmindplay.com. If you would like to learn more about my work as a meditation teacher, therapist, and coach, please visit julianocean.us. Your support is greatly appreciated. And if you have any comments or questions or thoughts, please don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to hear from you. Like a flower in the sky Climbing higher and higher and higher And I thought it'd be a month of Sundays Before I ever fell in love again now it seems I found me a new beautiful friend. 
Well, she's super humble. Yeah. Oh, got a good sense of humor, too. She's a bikini dispelling darkness, sunshine in through. Like a flower in the sky. Climbing higher and higher and higher. No need to reach for why. Like a flower in the sky Sitting and breathing Deep inside Cold when wind blows round outside Trying to relax Enjoy this here ride Like a flower in Climbing higher and higher and higher No need to reach for why Like a flower in the sky I'm secretly sending magic metal Yeah, with my mind Yeah, the wind blows around in the edges of the wise and kind The fire crackles, yeah And all our boundaries unwind But now it's back to reality with no Like a flower in the sky Climbing higher and higher and higher No need to reach for wine Like a flower in the sky Like a flower